You are listening to the Concrete Evers Podcast. This here, it's episode 24. Welcome to the Concrete Nervous Podcast. My name is Brian Talore, and I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for choosing to spend a bit of your day here with me. Now, I would personally love to interact with each and every one of you that is listening to this podcast. Um, I'd like to hear your story. Uh, so if you'd like to reach out and interact, uh, there's a couple of different ways you could do it. You can certainly reach out uh, via email, brian at concreteneverest.com, or you could download the Podbean app. And uh, look up Concrete and Everest. Make sure you hit that follow button uh, so you're notified whenever a new episode is uploaded. But you could, uh, with the Podbean app, you could leave comments on the various episodes. Uh, of course, you can find me on a variety of social media Instagram, uh, Twitter. I've got YouTube going on. If you haven't checked out the YouTube page, if you want to get an inside, if you, if you want to get a head start, because here's what I've started doing with YouTube. I've started live casting the conversations that I've had with various folks. Now, I've only done this about three or four times, so I'm still kind of learning, uh, getting my sea legs, so to speak. I'm, I'm, I'm still learning the ins and outs of YouTube. But if you'd like, if you'd like to see uh, face-to-face and a truly authentic conversation with no editing, make sure you check out, subscribe to the YouTube page or follow Conquering Everest Podcast on Facebook. Uh, and that way you'll be notified whenever we go live. Also on twitch.tv. So if you are a twitch.tv uh, follower, fan, uh, check us out. Conquering Everest Podcast, very simple. I will have all of the links in the description below. And listen, if you've got a story, if you've got a story that you feel like the world needs to hear, definitely reach out to me. Definitely reach out to me because I would love to get you on and, and hear your story. Because let's face it, our stories are the backbone of existence. I mean, we all have our own ups and downs, our own triumphs and tragedies. And, uh, you know, it's it's through the sharing of those experiences, through the vulnerability and authenticity of our stories that, uh, well, well, you know, we can change lives. And you just never know whose life your story might change. So if you're interested in being uh, part of the Conquering Everest podcast, make sure you drop me an email, brian at conqueringeverest.com. Now, in today's episode, I get to speak to actor, comedian, producer, uh, man, what has this guy not done in the entertainment business? Brian Naismach was uh, bullied as a kid due to his appearance. Uh, you know, he was he was husky, as us <laughs> as as our parents like to say. You know, we're, we're husky. They take us shopping in the husky section. He had a birthmark on his face, and uh, you know, he he had to overcome a lot of uh, you know a, a lot of of bullying and and and. and in prejudice, I guess, I guess would be the word, uh, as he found his place and he found his footing in, in life. So without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Brian Nesmach. Brian Nesmach, welcome to the Concrete and Everest podcast. How have you been? I've been fine here in Toronto. <clears throat> Pardon me. It's been a little cold. We had spring 
And now we're back to fall. Thank goodness we're not to winter yet. Right. So glad to have you on. You've got a, a, a an interesting story, and you've uh, you've accomplished quite a bit in in your life. Uh, before we take the deep dive and go uh, back in time, if you wouldn't mind, maybe just tell the listeners a little bit about who Brian is today. Ah, uh, Brian today. Um, let me just clear my throat. <clears> throat> uh, I am right now focusing on, believe it or not, storytelling. Um, I uh, live here in Toronto, um, and uh, I've always had a desire to uh, showcase myself, let's say. And so I still continue to do this. But Brian now is, um, believe it or not, 70 years old. Um, you don't look what, it. I know. Um, I say to people, I'll never go through a second childhood because I haven't been through my first. Um, <laughs> I've got one shot of AstraZeneca because up here in Canada, I think we're 43rd behind Malawi when it comes to getting our inoculations out. In mm. fact, you guys are sending us the AstraZeneca you're not using, and then we're going to give it back. Um, so <laughs> it's been a it's been a very odd year and a bit. Um, what I really enjoy over the last number of years is doing live event fundraisers where I will write and I'll work with the hosts. And they're just a bunch of intense affairs where you spend a good deal of time helping put together an event that a lot of rich people come to and spend money. And at the end of it, there's a real sense of satisfaction and it's an affair. You put your time and energy and love into it and then it's over and you move on to the next. Um, and that's what I think I miss the most. I miss the most of the interactivity with people, but that sense of finishing something, accomplishing something, getting it done is, is what I've missed a lot over the last year. But over the last year, because of uh, the internet, uh, I've told stories in places like India um, and throughout the States and Canada and met a whole bunch of great storytelling people. So it's a situation where you do what you think you can with what you're, it's the old making lemonade out of right. lemons. Uh, <laughs> I'm also making zest, which sometimes zest. will hurt my knuckles. So <laughs> yeah, don't be careful around the graders. Oh, please, please. Yeah. Uh, every year there's something at pass uh, at um, Hanukkah I make, which are potato pancake, potato latkes. And I do the, I do the potatoes in a grater and always there'll be just that little bit of skin in there to add the <laughs> essence to yeah. whatever they're eating. Just a little, little flavor, a little more protein, maybe. I don't know. Oh yeah. Let's call it protein. Protein. So you've got, uh, I'm looking at your website and, and, and we've had a conversation prior, but you've got quite, quite the credits uh, to your name, but it wasn't always, or, or I'm say it wasn't always that way, based on, or maybe you wouldn't have believed it would have been that way based on your, your childhood and some of the things that you've had to go through. So if you, let's, let's go back in time to, to, to little Brian, uh, mm. and, and talk a little bit about your life growing up. Well, little Brian is always here. Let me tell you okay. that the other day, little Brian, I uh, had a dispute with the, uh, Reynolds aluminum wrap. It mm. decided to come out of its box as I pulled it, as it will do from time to time. 
and then it gave little Brian a paper cut. Mm. Little Brian destroyed the box that the uh, the tinfoil is in. So now I've just got the, the roll of tinfoil. So little you, Brian is you know, always you, there. As I say, you know, on the sides of the foil, there's two little things you can poke in. I just learned this like about two years ago that will actually help keep the foil in the box. My it's, God, it's great when you can learn something yeah. every day of your life. All my life I'd been dealing with the darn aluminum foil yes. falling out, but uh, yeah. Now now I know, thank you, but I learned how to kill a box of aluminum foil. <laughs> yeah. Uh, little Brian, um, it's interesting. On one hand, uh, I came into the world in a pretty safe um, environment when it came to uh, mother, father, a brother and sister who I didn't realize were half brothers and half sisters till like I was 11, even though mm. I had three sets of grandparents, I was not a bright child. And when <laughs> I figured it out and thought I might be adopted, they let me know my father had been married to a woman. She died from cancer. He married my mother who he picked up a bar in Crystal Beach, Ontario, but that's another story. <laughs> and they had me, um, but my father was starting to create a very um, profitable law practice. So. I was never wanting for anything. And, and being the baby and the spoiled brat, I got what I wanted. That was on one hand. On the other hand, I've always been what was referred to as husky, mm -hmm. which as you know, is your parents' word for fat or yep. overweight. I've been and, there. <laughs> yes. But I, the, one of the embarrassing thing was if I wanted clothes, I had to go to Uncle Milty's men's and boys wear and go to the back corner where they had the husky section oh, for clothes yeah. for me, you know, bigger boned boys. So that had me stand out. And you might notice that on this side of my face, you see a little birthmark. Well, it never was that small until I had a sebaceous cyst when I was 35. It used to go all the way down to my chin. Mm. So when I pop up at public school, I am the center of certain ridicule when I play sports or, I mean, even younger, uh, one of the refrains that sticks in my mind was, hey, Naza schmuck, you got shit on your face. <laughs> and as I, as I said, I couldn't run because I was husky and I couldn't fight. Yeah. And so for the first little while, I pretty well went into a shell. Um, and I don't know when it was that I started to develop a sort of, not necessarily immediately a sense of humor, but deciding, okay, I'm not going to take this. I'm going to make the first step. Hmm. Either I will come back on them with something or I will ridicule myself to take the sting out of it. And, and I was thinking about this as I prepared for our, our chat. For the longest time, I thought that people would remember me, not for me, but hey, it's the guy with the birthmark. Mm. That's how I thought my terms of reference would be because I was so insecure about who I was. So it wasn't me, the essence of me, the character of me. It was, hey, physically, I'll remember this guy because of this. And that is something that, as I said, I just thought about that. And it, the interesting thing is um, I never grew a beard uh, until I was 
I had a career working with the opera company. It's it's a long story. I don't know if we get into it, but uh, there was a a festival we were doing where I was playing the character Falstaff, where I would host a series of concerts. Um, and so I, I grew a beard for it. Um, in my mind, I was going to shave the beard off afterwards. And um, what would happen after the cards? We'd go to the beer garden and, and, and talk with the people who were there. And I'm sitting at the table with an attractive woman, as I would like to do most of my life. And we're talking, and she is a um, hairstylist, barber, whatever you want to call it. And I'm saying, you know what? I, I need a trim. And I think, why don't you do shave my beard off when I go to see you next week? She says, oh, don't shave the beard off. It, it makes you attractive. I went, duh. I never thought I was attractive. So I kept the beard. And the interesting thing is, for the next three weeks, it was the Casanova period of my life. Because I thought I was attractive. Three women who had been friends went over to the other side for a while. But then I realized it really didn't make me that attractive. And I, I really kept the beard uh, until I was doing a, a one-person show about my life. And I needed to show people the birthmark. Oh, yeah. And that was like eight years ago. And um, I've kept it off ever since. During COVID, I went, well, maybe I'll keep the beard. And then I've seen what it looks like on its growth period. I went, no, I won't. So that that was my balance of life for the first 12 years. On one hand, I'm getting ridiculed, I'm fat, I have I'm insecurities even though I'm developing a sense of humor. On the other hand, ooh, we've got money coming in, we've got a really nice house, we've got a great cottage, a place called Crystal Beach. Not a, a, a palatial college, but uh, a cottage, but a, a nice one. And it wasn't wanting for everything. Although my parents taught me work ethic, I had a paper route. I would sell balloons at the Santa Claus parade. I had odd jobs. I did. So it wasn't that because my family came from a pretty middle class background and they had to struggle, they wanted to teach me struggle. So I had that going for me. When I was 12 years old and I was actually at our cottage in Crystal Beach selling uh, papers at the, the stand. My father comes and informs us on one Friday because he would stay in Toronto Monday to Friday and join my sister, my brother, my, my mother, myself at our cottage on Saturday, Sunday, or fr drive up Friday night. He told us to be prepared for some problems. In Canada, the divorce laws where you had to commit adultery or say you committed adultery. That We were very... Um, stuck up. Um, so lawyers would arrange women who are called correspondents, and they would be people who um, would appear to be committing adultery with the clients. There'd be no stooping involved, just they go to a place called the Seahorse Motel and take suggestive pictures. And this was happening, and everything was cool, and everyone's looking the other way because they knew the law was wrong. And this was before the first Trudeau came in and changed the law. Right. Well, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, uh, one of our, our, our networks, did an expose called the Shady Lady Affair, where they shot one of these correspondents in the shadows, although it wasn't a correspondent, it was somebody who was pretending to be one. But it made front page headlines, and the government decided here in Ontario they had to crack down. 
So the only person who was ever prosecuted was my father. <clears throat> so here I am selling papers when I'm 12 <laughs> years old with my father's picture on it, talking about what he's done. And that, um, that was kind of harsh. And then yeah. he was disbarred and he was sent to jail and we lost money because we had fines and investing in legal fees and stuff like that. And I say that the silver spoon was ripped out of my mouth. And then um, he got back out of uh, jail and he couldn't be a lawyer, became a mortgage broker. And he was working very, very hard. And there was problems at home with my mom because he still wanted to keep up with the finances, which was putting right. it more in hawk. I used to go to the office with him on Saturday morning because when I was younger, I thought I'd be a lawyer like him. Uh, and my dad, and I just put something on Facebook about it. My dad took me to baseball when I was a kid and taught me how to do the box score. And for a number of years, I worked for United Press International covering the Blue Jays first by doing the box store, but, but then by doing game stories. And I, I lucked into that because of him. And he, he developed my love of theater, my love of sports. So we were very close. And even uh, I would phone him many days at the office to find out when he was coming home. And I phoned him this one Thursday. It was March 5th. And I wanted to make sure he was coming home in time because we were all science fiction fans in the movie called The Day the Earth Stood Still was playing over the dinner hour. And we were all going to be in the den eating uh, Swanson's beef TV dinners, which had the green tea. <laughs> but anyways, and he said he wasn't feeling that well. He lay down at the office, uh, but he'd be home. And he came home and he didn't go into the den. So we knew something was wrong. And he went upstairs and he never came down because he had a heart attack and died Oof. in the house. And so that started me um, in a situation of trying to find out what life was all about because in September, one of my best friends was killed on his bicycle. And then on Christmas Eve, the little girl I babysat for died in a car crash. So over the space of March to December, three people who I was close to, and I hadn't really lost anyone except mm -hmm. some grandparents, but I didn't know about that because I was too young. And that sent me in another direction again. And I closed off. I closed off to my mother, especially. I closed off to people. I didn't want to get close to anyone because they would get uh, too close and then die on me. Right. And I think it still affect, affected <clears throat> me in my relationships. And it still might. But that turned young Brian and 14-year-old and Brian into being optimistic but a realist. Mm -hmm. um, and deciding that I would go for everything I could want to go for because I could be gone any time now. And, you know, failure is going to happen. <laughs> My father failed to be around. These people failed to be around. Um, so I'm not going to let that stop me. So I established goals that I never caught to exactly the position I wanted to be at, but I got to a point where I went good enough. Or if I failed, I got to be to a point, well, I could fail worse. Okay. So uh, that I think has formed my approach to saying, I want to do this. And, and me saying to people throughout my life, when I've been working in certain areas and people come up to me, say, can I try this? Should I try this? I go, sure, go for it. Cause you don't want to turn mm -hmm. around three years later and going, you know, back then I should have, but now, I mean, 
I've never, I never really gotten the responsibility of having to take care of more than myself. I've had an ex-wife. I have a partner um, who could buy and sell me five times over. I've got a stepson who makes more, much more money than I do. So when it comes to that situation, and we all have responsibilities, I'm just yeah. responsible basically for myself. Although I am responsible, I mean, you know, God knows the amount of money I spent on sports tickets for my stepson. Yeah, you know the amount of money I spend, uh, you know, just to you know keep the house going. But it's not a situation where I've ever had a company, which I wanted to have, to hire other people to work with me, because I, I I've shunned that responsibility because of how I've approached life. Right. I said that one thing that I heard many years ago, but it stuck with me is that. Uh, the graveyards are full of broken dreams or unfulfilled promise. And so I've tried to keep that as my mantra as well. So, you know, if there's something I want to do, make sure I at least give it, uh, give it a try because the worst happens, right? You fail and, and but you're going to learn something nonetheless. When, um, oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. When I was in university, it was dare to struggle, dare to win. And once I got out, it was win some, lose most. <laughs> yeah. And that's true. I mean, how much, how many things do we, you know, you, you, I've tried a lot of different things in my life until I, I really discovered, you know, my passion and what I want to pursue. What was, so, so what was your first, you know, when, when you were thinking about your future and what you wanted to do, what, what did you get? Cause I know you, you were in comedy, you got into production. Well, well, comedy, comedy, I fell into haphazardly in a, in, in a sense. Um, yeah, I always, I always looked at the people who were able to share their ideas and thoughts or, or entertainment. And when I was, must have been seven years old, we went to Windsor, Ontario on Christmas break and stayed at the Elmwood Resort. And it had an indoor pool. Uh, it was great. We were going to go in an indoor pool, but I had a cold, so I can go to the indoor pool. So I didn't know what I was going to do. Well, the first night we're there, we go to see two nightclub comedians called Jack Eagle and Frank Mann. And if you know who Martin and Lewis were, or mm. people know that, um, they were sort of a C version of Martin and Lewis. They were entertaining as hell. And, and seeing them up close, it was fantastic. During the show, they would come up from time to time and they'd run around the audience and get members of the audience to pat down their sweaty brow. <laughs> and they got me, one of them, Jack Eagle. And I got a laugh when I, I patted his brow and my own brow. Um, and then I adopted them for two days. <laughs> I hung out with them. Uh, because even at that age, I went, oh, I want this. And I'd been accustomed to getting things as a spoiled brat. And you know, I was very charming as a young guy, so okay. Now I get home, my sister Karen, now my sister Karen, God love her, she's passed away. Um, she was the true talent in our family. I don't exactly know. I, I, I think my talent is that I don't block myself, I improvise, and usually I, I am funny or come up with something that's interesting. Mm -hmm. So my sister Karen, um, 
because it wasn't something a nice Jewish girl to do in the 60s, she was dissuaded from acting. Although she was a great actress, she sang, she won awards in high school, she was an artist. But she found this thing called Lady Featherbottom, which was a two-person routine hmm. where I was the straight man in it. Okay. <laughs> and she dragged me up in front of family members and we would um, do this very bad routine where I had a lousy British accent and I would always get a laugh if, were you intimate with Lady Featherbottom? Somehow. <laughs> so that got me started on getting the laugh. And that happened a number of times at family gatherings and friends gatherings. And then she broke the act up to pursue a solo career. And I went into the comedy closet. Soon after that, my dad took me to a theater in Toronto called the O'Keefe Center, which was the big theater. Um, it opened up with Camelot before it went to Broadway. It, it was a touring place. Broadway shows used to tour around before it hit New York and Toronto was the second last. So I went to see the musical Oliver on its way to Broadway after it done in England. And that's where that goal was to be in a musical, but not only, more important than that was to be on the O'Keefe Center stage. I figured I can get there, it's Toronto. Right. So the comedy was in the background because I wanted to be an actor in a musical. And so of course I auditioned for everything at school and my roles included mm -hmm. a boy, policeman number two, the wing commander. Uh, I never had, oh, pirate. I never had a character where it actually had a name it was always referred to as, oh, the wing commander. Oh, oh, there's the policeman, never policeman number two. <laughs> so I thought, okay, this may not happen. Well, I get to University of Toronto. I get in a review called UC Follies, which was famous for a number of things. A number of people started there, including a guy named Lauren Lipowitz, who people might know him only by the name of Lauren Michaels, the guy who started Saturday Night Live. He was in uh, UC Follies. So I thought, okay, this is my ticket. I'm gonna do UC Follies, I'll get discovered. The show was so bad, it closed during dress rehearsal. At intermission, <laughs> the producer comes back and says, this show, we're not putting in front of paying people. We finished the rehearsal, I'm in, in the backstage, and this guy comes over, he's from the Canadian Opera Company, he's looking for extras, supernumeraries. On an opera, sometimes there are people who are on stage, they don't sing, they just, fill in the atmosphere or they carry furniture or dead bodies and stuff like that. And he offers me the chance to join the Canadian Opera Company that fall while I'm still in university. And my knowledge of opera was solely based on Warner Brothers cartoons, Killed a Wabbit, the Bunny <laughs> said, I went, no, I don't want to be in an opera. And then he told me it performed on the OQ Center stage. That's how I got on the OQ Center stage, not by singing, by, by being in a firing squad or playing an elegant gentleman and stuff like that. So I lived that dream, but not exactly like I felt. And then through an odd series of circumstances, because I was taking the new program, I was <clears throat> taking any course I wanted to. So I audited something called the stage management course at University of Toronto Opera School, learned about props and sets and costumes. I also wrote for the varsity newspaper. So when I graduated with a three-year degree in nothing, um, there were very little choices for work. My uncle's sheet metal and roofing business or the varsity newspaper's sports editor. The first offered me a chance 
for advancement of the family business and the good pay. And the second one, uh, I got to work putting the paper together three nights a week and get free Chinese food. So of course I went for the egg roll, <laughs> but I get a call from the head of the opera company who'd become an ally. Um, and one of the assistant stage managers on the North America tour of the Cozy Fantute couldn't go in the second year. And because I took the stage management course, he offered it to me. So I didn't tour with a musical. I spent three years across North America as the other servant in Cozy Fantute moving furniture and throwing <laughs> out people. So once again, I sort of lived my dream, but not exactly how I dreamt it. Right. I come back from the tour just to get to the comedy. I come back from the tour. Um, I'm living in a house with three other guys, and one of them's helping out at a at a show at Bethlehem Synagogue called Three Cheers for Showbiz, which I thought nobody ever saw. So they need help with lighting because I learned lighting. So I go up there to help with lighting. I see this most stunningly attractive woman I've ever met in my life. Her nickname is Boom Boom Varum, this dancer. But I'd been because when you're on tour and you meet people, not necessarily wanting to sleep with them, but because you're on tour, you drop all your pretenses. Right. You know how we let people in a little bit at a time. I'm, I'm going on a bus the next morning. So I, in Paducah, Tucky, I stayed up with this guy all night just comparing stories on where we were and where we wanted to be. And we realized that each of us were living the life other one person wanted to live, but we were happy with where we were. So I, I come off the tour. I'm doing three cheers for showbiz. I get my heart torn out by a woman who I told how much I felt after two meetings. And so I'm not going to go anywhere near, near telling Boom Boom Room how I feel. Everyone else is hitting on her. Right? It's like, I'll keep away. The final night party is at our house of the four of us. I'm in my room drinking Chevis Regal at that time. And she comes up and we chat and she goes downstairs. And a few minutes later, I go down and I see the guy who was the comic in the show and i know ostensibly i'm funnier than this guy i know that from just talking to people in the world so i sit down and when i have my time i start to do some shtick shtick i've never done on stage politically incorrect like you would <laughs> but of course everyone loved it so and she did too and gail comes over to me afterwards and says very funny and she was leaving i said she said i hope to see you again i said so do i what she doesn't know is I know that she takes tap dance classes on Saturday morning mm -hmm. with the intermediate group at 11 o'clock. So the next Saturday, I'm taking tap dance with the beginners group at 10 <laughs> o'clock. Nine-year-olds and me shuffle ball changing. And for the three weeks, we go across the path each other. And then I invite her to go to see my mother's boss's horse runs at the Trotters. And then we spend a lot of time over the summer. And then she goes away in the fall to dance in Georgia, and I'm a little upset about that. And somebody who saw me in my living room drags me to an improv comedy show. And that's how I got into comedy. Oh, wow. It's, what I'm, I guess the question I would ask you is, where did you find the courage? Um, if it, it, I figure, I was bullied and, and had some some problems uh, in school when I was young, and that created a lot of insecurities and fears in me that I didn't get over until I was 40 years old for some of them. Where did you find the did, did you ever have that like doubt in your mind where you didn't believe in yourself? And then it maybe it was at your father's death that 
you know, struck a chord that you said, Hey, I, I can't afford to be afraid or. Yeah. I, 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 th I think was that, I, I mean, I really <laughs> didn't believe in myself. I didn't believe that people wanted to necessarily be with me. I was always not never part of the in crowd. I mean, I didn't have a best friend until grade six and Paul was my best friend, even though he played the accordion. <laughs> then he started to date my cousin who I sort of had a crush on, but she was a half cousin. And then um, when I got to high school, I was not part of the crowd. And then I think it was part of my dad's death that did it. I mean, my family was very supportive. I mean, my sister especially was dragging me places and, but I, I think it was, I think it was more the fact that I could see the differences around me. I could see all these privileged people who were just letting the privilege take them where they wanted to. Hmm. And I had the privilege and I lost the privilege. I didn't like not being with the privilege, but not the privilege of money because we lost that money. And, and I, I think from 12 to 14 is where it happened. Uh, losing that money and losing some friends when my dad got into trouble and, you know, uh, because we were in a pretty upper middle class area, some people were snubbing us. Um, and then losing all those people that I was close to. I mean, yes, my dad, Stephen Mador was the closest I had to a best friend. We used to, we were terrible. We used to tape people when we'd phone them and do prank calls. Not necessarily is your refrigerator running. Our favorite was I'd call and I'd ask for Frank. Because so you've got the wrong number. A little while later, Stephen would call and ask for Frank. They go, oh no, no, sorry, you have the wrong number. Then I'd call back, going, hey Frank, I go, no, 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 there's no Frank here. <laughs> and then he'd call back and go, hi, it's Frank. Were there any calls? <laughs> this was our this and we would tape this and this would be steve and i and uh when he died and he was even farther outside than i was because he had muscular sclerosis mm, yeah. uh, so we were we were called quelquefois and souvent which means sometimes and often that's what our radio names when we taped all that stuff so i think it was a point where because i had had such a supportive side of my life things were so good on one side and and really upsetting on the other and, and i don't think i've ever lost i think my desire to get up there well when i was doing stand-up my desire was hey love me hey tell me i'm funny hey accept me mm -hmm. and when i got burnt out by stand-up well i started more stellar when i went to a place called yuck yucks i started mostly doing stories i realized and then as the audience changed and they got to watch Evening at the Improv and stuff like that, um, I started to change my material. And by the end of it, I was just Mr. Insult Comic because <laughs> I was just, I was bored with doing this Kung Fu Beaver 172 times. Right. Um, I saw people were eclipsing me because Howie Mandel and Jim Carrey had shown up in Toronto because that's where they started. Mm. I knew I wasn't that great a stand-up. I was a much better host. Um, and it, it just got to a point where, okay, I, I defied the man who owned the club openly. I got punished. And I said, I'm too 
old to be punished by this guy. And I walked away from the club, although we're friends because we don't have to work together. <laughs> so I think that it's still part of me. I, 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 I don't think you ever lose it. I don't think if you've been brought up with it, you never lose it. Uh, uh, and I think I just reinforce it by the things I do. I mean, I now get to a position where I am, to take a hockey analogy, I love going up there and telling stories and scoring the goal. Mm -hmm. But I love, I have a monthly storytelling show where I get other people to tell stories or I produce uh, some stuff for Storytelling Toronto. So I like getting the assist or being on the ice. I get the mm -hmm. same satisfaction that I had. I mean, I, I got to do a television warm-up for a show on Showtime that starred Marcel Marceau and a man who I watched from when I was seven years old, Red Skelton. Oh, wow. In front of 2,000 people, the biggest audience. I actually have a picture of them. And I, there's this one routine I did during the warm-up where I'd say, how many people have been part of a television audience before? Make some noise. How many have not? Make some noise. How many don't know? Make some noise. And always people will do that. And I go, oh, <laughs> people must be from Cleveland or, Portland or whatever would come up. And we're doing it at a place called Kitchener. And for some reason, because comedy is based on music, and I had found this town on the way up, I said, oh, you people must be from Hespler. Huge laugh. The big, it was the second most peak experience of my life on stage. And so whenever I needed to laugh, I went to Hespler. So, you know, that, I needed that reinforcement, but I don't, I don't yearn for it that much because that reinforcement tells me that I am more significant than I think I am when I was picked last after the baseball bat, we'll say. When, when you were doing the stand-up comedy, did you ever have a set where you just bombed and there was no laughs? Quickly, I'll tell you about two. One, I went to my, see my friend's a mother who was in the hospital, who was like dying, and I had to go on. Oh, my God. Oh, it was, I was terrible. Uh, from that, I learned, and the next time I was bombing, I actually stopped. I was doing a, a, the feature. I stopped about 20 minutes in. I said, wait a second. I'm licking the pig here. Let's, let's discuss where I went off track. Because in stand-up comedy, unless you're a Seinfeld or somebody at that level, usually you're performing. You're watching how you're doing and thinking, where am I going to go next? Because you have to get the audience. Unless they're there to see you and want to see their old favorites. You want to get the audience and keep them going. Well, I went off the track and I didn't realize I was going off the track. So I went over what I'd done and I found out, okay, they want more of this stuff. And I did that stuff. And so I get invited to do the show Evening at the Improv on A&E. And it was one Canadian would be the show every, every week because it was a Canadian co-production. So they fly me down. And uh, in those days, because when I played the southern states, they go, Nazamok from Canada, you, you an Eskimo? So I had this whole routine about being a Jewish Eskimo <laughs> and doing Inuit shtick and blubber jokes. And I come out wearing a parka and snowshoes and handing out ice cubes as souvenirs as I walk through. And I'm killing. I have visions 
of doing the Tonight Show. I'm thinking, this is my ticket to heaven again. And I did an Elvis joke. It wasn't a great Elvis joke. It had to do with, um, uh, it, there was um, Morris the Cat used to be somebody who sold uh, cat food. Mm. And Morris the Cat passed away. And my idea was that uh, they didn't say it in the National, it was a National Enquirer piece about him that he, he, it was a drug overdose. He OD'd on Nip because he had the same vet as Elvis. <laughs> this woman starts to boo and heckle me, and mm. I sort of lose it. If it had been a stand-up club, I would have used a couple words which would have been bleeped on television. But boy, did I go downhill, and that, that set just went away after that. Mm -hmm. I think Morris the Cat was nine lives, right? The nine lives food. So he yes, must, have, yes. must have ran through his nine lives. <laughs> oh, did he ever? So, yeah. So, and that was, I mean, I love the challenge. I love mm. the challenge of going out there and sparring. Um, but now in storytelling, I love the fact that if I tell a story, people might relate to it. And mm -hmm. other than just being entertain and maybe have a thought about one or two things here's here's a journey i went on how do you relate to it and that's the same thing we're talking about for anybody who's listening yeah here's the jury i went on i've been blessed you know i really have all the stuff that i've gone through the bad stuff not that bad i didn't lose a limb i'm i mean i had prostate cancer i thought it was like the most mickey mouse of cancer they just you know, they just put radioactive seeds and eradicated the sucker. I was hoping I could make microwave popcorn on my brain, but it didn't work, you know? So, yeah, for me, I've always said, okay, what's the flip side of this? Right. What's the flip side of me losing all those people? Well, it woke me up at 14 years old to go, wait a second. Don't just sit on your ass. And all the failures? Well... I did a show so bad at YTV when I was working there as a producer. It was the first NBA draft in Canada. I had phone calls yelling at me of how bad the show was. Oh, wow. It's like, okay, that's my benchmark. Hopefully I don't do anything as bad as that. Right. So it's kind of, it sounds like it's, it's just really about reframing um, those negative thoughts. If they want to pop up, it's, it's, it's looking at them <clears throat> in a different light pardon me <clears throat> that they sounds like for you that it was you looked at it as more of like it was preparation for the next step of of your career or your life yeah right. but if you have those negative thoughts they passed yeah and hopefully you're not still in that negativity bubble yeah you know if it's a thought you know and it, it's i mean i realize how lucky or blessed I am. I used to say that I must have done something really great in my last life to deserve this, through all of this, you know. Mm -hmm. But what choice do you have? What choice do you have if you don't fight what's going to overpower you? And, and, you know, and I have, I have bad days. I have insecure days. I, you know, I have things that I've lost and, I, you know, it's like, holy why did I lose? I mean, when I used to audition, I did terrible auditions. Oh my God, when I thought I was going to be an actor, I don't know why I suck so much. And I very seldom got a role from an audition, but I got roles haphazardly. I got a film role because somebody came to see Howie Mandel in Montreal and I was on the same bill. Mm. You know, it's like, 
you know, and then I auditioned for the next movie they were doing and I didn't get it in Montreal. I didn't get it because I had a, a, a girlfriend at the time. When I had a girlfriend, I wasn't funny. I was enjoying life. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm in Montreal. I'm living in Toronto. I'm in Montreal to see Sari over the um, Halloween period to help her, her sister with uh, her Halloween party. And I find out Sari not only has a Toronto boyfriend, but a Montreal boyfriend. And I am pissed. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I leave the party and I go to the Yuck Yucks Club in Montreal so I could take it out on the audience. Right, I'm going to do that. I'm going to get them to love me and laugh at me, and I don't care about anything else. And I go into the Yuck Yucks Club, and it's two days before we're going to shoot the movie that I didn't get the part. And one of my friends, the comic, Ralph Ben Murgy, says to me that he's given up his part. He got a better part in another movie. And the director's there to audition people to be in the movie. But because I'm a feature act, I get on no matter what. And I am hilariously funny when I'm in a bad mood. <laughs> and I get the part that I didn't get when I auditioned. Oh, wow. <laughs> funny, funny little, uh, I think of Bob Ross where he said, there's, there's no mistakes, only happy accidents or something <laughs> like that. It sounds, let's talk a little bit about um, your, but that's another story. Mm. Uh, what's, when did, when did you start that series? I started that a year and a half ago. Um, I knew the woman who runs this uh, cafe in Toronto called Free Time. She has a back room, which is mostly used for music. And I'd become part of um, the Storytelling Toronto group. I'm now the secretary of the board. And so I just walking by and I went, hey, can we use your back room once a month to do storytelling? And she said, sure, why not? And it was like, okay. So I... In Toronto, there's a couple of groups, some traditional storytellers and some personal storytellers. So I got some traditional tellers. I got some personal tellers. And we said, OK, we'll organize it. And I got this a woman who I, I worked with on fringe shows, Crystal Bartelzi, because she knew some of the younger tellers. So I wanted to include everybody. And so the first, the first, um, the first show, which was uh, just after week after Labor Day, because we do it once a month on usually the first Sunday, I wrote out thank you cards and I I, and I put uh, ten dollars in each thank you card for the tellers because no matter what, no, it was twenty, yeah, no, it was twenty dollars. No matter what, I wanted people to get money, and we tried to get ten dollars to get in. And I get to the restaurant forty five minutes, and the place is almost full. Wow. And so when I gave everybody their $20, I gave them an additional $10 because I'm a socialist, I think. <laughs> and, and every month after that, we would sell the place out. And then, of course, with uh, COVID, we got closed down here just over a year ago. So we did our, mm. our um, show in March, and then we were closed. So in April, we moved online. Um, and it's been fabulous because we now have tellers from all over who come onto our show. And since I've done shows in other places, I've got, I mean, this month I've got somebody from New Jersey, somebody from California, and then three other people from around here. And Crystal and I tell a story. And now what we do is we ask for it's pay what you can uh, for just the price of $10. 
Each teller gets their $20. And because we don't have to pay rent anymore, we give the rest of the money to a charity. So last mm -hmm. month, Sick Children's Hospital got 300 bucks. Wow. Yeah. So it, it, it's a showcase for people <laughs> to tell their stories. And I, I, that's my whole life is, but that's another story. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, it's amazing because, you know, you could have looked at the COVID and said, well, we're shut down. That's it. You know, it's a wrap. But, you know, taking it to a, the virtual space and, and you're able to help, you know, not just the, the folks telling their stories, but you're able to help, you know, the hospital or whatever charities you guys that um, decide to donate to. That's just I, it's another to me, it's another, um, you know, how the power of positive thinking right and if you if you don't look at it as a as a hindrance and you say okay well that's done but how can we keep moving forward um there you go yeah well it, you know it's good if you can do that i mean i'm yeah. not every, i mean we had a storytelling festival that was going on and the woman who was the um festival artistic director just shut down completely and it was like we at the board we're going wait a sec in fact we did our own sort of mini showcase but yeah you've you've got to do that and mm -hmm. you know uh i was seeing what people were doing and i just said okay let's jump on that bandwagon and it's amazing you can find a storytelling show every day of the year going on somewhere hmm. around the world yeah. i mean earlier today there was a, a meeting uh, of people. They have this 99 second story slam where you have to do, finish a story in 99 seconds. And it's kind of competitive. But today at three o'clock, people who wanted to test their stories with other storytellers were getting together. So they could say, how about doing this? How about doing that? And the same thing happened in the early days of standup before you know it got to be, wait, this is my chance to make it famous and big. Hmm. So. So yeah, um, but I understand that not everybody has been in a similar situation and can't fault themselves if they can't jump to the quick right away. Right. I mean, to me, I think it's because I, I don't know why I've always learned to improvise. And if mm. you can improvise, if you don't block yourself, that's the problem people have. They think, I have to put it this way, they think too much. Yeah, Life is reacting, not acting. The and when you talk about storytellers, are, are these stories of, I mean, funny, sad, serious? I mean, is it all it gets, kinds of different stories, or it gets to be all of them? It, it's interesting because last month, the first storyteller who was a new storyteller told this uh, story about him um, having an operation and what it took out of him just going through, realizing he had to do it, realizing what the outcome could be. And I was telling my story forth, and I changed stories, and I told my prostate cancer story because I thought it was kind of interesting um, that, you know, I'm, you know, what, 15 years free, and my sister died from cancer, and I, I you know, we're all just one separation from cancer. So right. I try to put some humor in, but what we try to do on our show is we try to at least feature one traditional storyteller. So you'll get um, a, a fable, you'll get uh, a historical piece, uh, 
or you know, or you'll get three or four people who are saying, "Here's what I've been through. Here's my adventure. Here's my my trek down the path. This is what I went through." Mm-hmm. For the ninety nine second stories, they're all personal stories. Um, you know, I'm um, I'm working on a couple right now. I used to, when I was a kid, there was a a show that used to be on every year called Peter Pan the Musical. Okay. And there was a guy named Cyril Richard from England who played the villainous Captain Hook. And I, it was the first character I loved to hate, you know, <laughs> and I'd watch it every year and it'd be great. And then he came to Toronto to be in a musical. So there I am after the matinee with about 12 other 11 year olds. Most people had their autograph books open, waiting outside <laughs> the stage door, waiting for Cyril Richard. And the big moment happened and he just walked through us and dismissed oh, us. Oh, man. And oh, did that hurt. Yeah. But then Anthony Newley, who was in the show as well, came out and he was so nice and he walked us to the subway and then he invited us across the street to meet his wife who was in his hotel room, who was Joan Collins from Dynasty. Oh, wow. And she was so sweet to us because of what Cyril had done. And I say, my last line is, the next year when I watched Peter Pan, I still could hate the pirate and I just didn't love them that much. Right. So if, 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 if our listeners here uh, on this show, if they wanted to learn more about you or uh, more about the, the uh, but that's a different story. What, uh, what, do, what do you have going on? Social media, websites? So, so my name spelled oddly, Brian, B-R-I-A-N-E, Nazimok, N-A-S-I-M-O-K dot C-A. But it's easy to track us down on, uh, oh, Brian, uh, but that's another story, dot uh, C-A. Uh, that's our website. Oh, it's briannesmock.com because we've got the American version. Yeah. <laughs> I, I bought the American version. and But that's another story, dot C-A. I'm on Facebook. Um, I'm available for bar mitzvahs. So, you know, uh, you know you yeah, I, one more shot away from the AstraZeneca College, and then I can go on the road and uh, visit. But, yeah, no, I... I just, uh, I, and I hope that people, if like we have, if people come to the show and see it and they want to tell a seven, eight minute story, you want to tell an eight minute story, you're there. You get $20 Canadian um, you and you get a copy of it. And uh, it's a relief. You know, it really is to share is something we all don't do enough of. Yeah. And especially uh, now that we can't go out and see people. And this way you share, and it's a very supportive group. Yeah, that in in telling your story, being vulnerable. I mean, whether you, it's funny or sad, or you know, just getting it out there. It's it's not only I found it to be therapeutic for me, but it, it, it the the number of people that it could help. You just don't you just don't know. It could be that one person that one day that needed to hear something, and uh, there you were with your story. So. Yeah, I always encourage everybody get get your stories out there. Don't be afraid to tell it, um, no matter you know how how happy or sad the, the 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 plot twists are. You know. Well, that's the great thing that you're doing, that you're sharing people's stories, and hopefully people will go, "Aha!" Yeah. And that's all we can. I mean, what, why are we here on the planet other than to you know, eat, drink, and be merry? We're yeah. here to uh, leave a little something. We're gone. And if somebody can hear something and let it have an effect on them, um, that's great. 
But that's why, you know, that's why when I saw that you were doing this, I went, hey, here's my story. Let's share it and see who uh, who says, hey, that was cool. Yeah. And, you know, and I always take a little bit from every story and, you know, it, it adds a different element to, to my way of thinking or, you know, um, like with talking to you and, and hearing about the, the what I'm calling the happy little accidents to where it you ended up getting to to where you wanted to go, but maybe not by the means that you thought you'd get there. Uh, it's just a, for me as a great reminder not to dwell on what isn't, but keep pushing forward for what you want to be. So I appreciate that. Wow, so thank you. Yeah, Brian, it's been great having you on the show, and um, you know I'll, I'm going to keep in touch and and I'll keep keep an eye on you and, and hope, hopefully uh, I think you've got a lot more story to tell. And uh, so down in the future, uh, I'd like to have you back on the show and maybe we could dig a little bit deeper into your acting and producing and all that good stuff. But oh, I have stories. This could be like Jaws part two. There you go. Jaws, <laughs> Brian, Brian part two. Yeah. Part two. But, but yeah. And uh, Hey, one day we'll get you to do an eight minute story. Yeah, hey, I'd be interested. I'm gonna I'm gonna go check that out. Uh, now that you know, I've got it, the bookmark and everything, and I'll make sure all the links and and whatnot are in the descriptions uh, for everybody to to go out and take it. That'd be great. When and it, as I said, it, you're doing a great job here, and uh, I, I'm I'm sure people are thankful they get to hear a whole range of people who seemingly have survived somewhat optimistically. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, thanks again, Brian, and we will talk again real soon. I hope so. And there you have my conversation with Brian Nesmach. I hope you enjoyed listening to the, his story as, as much as I've enjoyed bringing it to you. He, he was definitely an entertaining, entertaining person to, to talk to, and I can certainly appreciate the struggles, the triumphs, uh, or the tragedies that he turned into triumphs in his life. And Brian, if you're listening, I sure do appreciate you being a guest on the show. Now, if you're still listening, if you're still here, I appreciate you. You're a rock star. You're a rock star. And 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 once again, just just one last thing I'd like to to request of you if if you find this if you found any value in this podcast, whether it be um, a breakthrough in your life or or maybe it was just a a a, a momentary time of entertainment to bring you down from a bad day or you know what maybe maybe just maybe we helped you go to sleep tonight if that's the case and you're hearing my voice right now uh, <clears throat> make sure you wake up and listen to the podcast again because you missed out on a great conversation i just gotta say but uh please be sure to share uh this podcast with your family friends blast it out on social media uh, we would sure appreciate it. We, as in myself and the guests coming on to share their stories. Make sure you check out all the links that we've provided in the description for you below. And, uh, you know, until next time. Wait, before I get there, I guess there's a couple things. Make sure you check out the YouTube channel or, or, or Twitch or Facebook if you'd like to watch these conversations in 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 a live cast format if you'd like to see our faces as we bring you the stories make sure you check them out it's, it's, it's think of it as an early access you get early access to the podcast and it's completely unedited and authentic so be sure you check that out uh but until next time you know i gotta leave it with you i gotta leave this with you until next time make sure you aim high be courageous 
and go do amazing things. Why? Because you're an amazing person.